Hi there. We have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying the DLC Live podcast and you're listening on a platform that lets you leave a rating or a review, leave us a five-star rating. Maybe take a minute to write a quick review. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to DLC Live, your source for educational and inspirational interviews with mental health experts and advocates from around the world. Now, here's your host, creator of the DLC Anxiety Worldwide Mental Health Community, Dean Stott. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's um, live, this week's recovery room. Uh, really looking forward to it. Today we are speaking about bad anxiety advice. Um, so what bad anxiety advice have you had um, before? We're going to discuss it. Lots of you have been leaving um, your bad advice in the comments. So really appreciate that. And I'll go go around the room, uh, the recovery room, and see what the guys think. Is it bad advice? Is it just misplaced advice? Or is it good advice? Um, so hopefully we'll get some disagreements today, which will be fantastic. So yeah, stick around, guys. It'll be fun as always. And let's just continue uh, breaking the stigma around anxiety and mental health. Oh, it's warm, Bruce. Oh my gosh, Josh. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> Josh, where are you? I'm in. I'm near you, actually, Dean, in an unknown location. I've actually. I've never heard the... of that place. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in North Wales, um, and I was going to sit down and I was looking forward to doing our live, and then there was no signal, so I just drove around the corner, and then there's lots of signals. So, so. Oh, yeah. can, can you can you hear me all right? Is everything all right? Yeah, no, it's all good. So you're doing it from the. Are you in the boot of your car? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I live here. Uh, just, just full disclosure. I live here. I live in a car. I, I don't, I don't do anything. Please. At least it's got air conditioning. Uh, right, yeah. it's the coolest place yeah. in Wales right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, definitely. exactly. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I haven't done my signs, so if you guys haven't, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't, th- I don't think you have either, have you, Josh? I, I got, I got a signs. I, I got a uh, yeah, system. Exactly. Got, do you know from, from Joaquin Phoenix from Gladiator? Yeah. Um, so yeah. today we're going to discuss bad anxiety advice. So bad advice, be it from a therapist, from a friend, from a parent, you name it. Uh, we'll discuss uh, lots of people have been leaving um, their experiences. So it'll be really interesting to uh, get your guys' take on it to see if we agree or disagree with certain ones, uh, it'd be really cool if we if we disagree. Um, because, yeah, we're always agreeing. So let's see if we can uh, find some disagreements. Just before we start, if we just go around the room just to introduce yourself. And um, so, Sorry, I just got distracted by the comment. Just to introduce yourself. To oh, sorry, Dean, 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 sorry, don't block this, the troll. Dude, okay. go go to yeah. go to OCD Recovery UK and troll that page, please. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Got to stir the pot. All right, I, I will get us back on track. Uh, I I'm Drew Linsalata, uh, creator and host of the Anxious Truth podcast, and author of the Anxious Truth and Seven Percent Slower, which is coming out shortly. Uh, anyway, you can find me here at the truth, and I'm just always happy to spend my Friday with these these folks. Good people. Uh, yeah, Ditto, Ditto, and uh, Josh. I'm Joshua Fletcher, psychotherapist and author, uh, co-author of Untangle Your Anxiety with Dean. And I'm looking forward to answering some questions about what you've got. Yeah, that lovely yellow book. 
Fantastic. Oh. And last but not least, the lovely Kimberly. Hi, everybody. I'm Kimberly Quinlan. I am a marriage and family therapist. I specialize in anxiety disorders and eating disorders. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. Um, guys, before we uh, start off with uh, the followers, I would just want to speak about our own, if, if we've had any um, bad advice um, and what, what the others think about it. So I'm going to kick start it. And the advice that I had was, um, if you're feeling anxious, um, just have a coffee and a cigarette. Bear in mind I don't smoke, but just have a coffee and a cigarette. And I'll tell you who gave me that advice as well. So, uh, Drew, is that good advice? Is that misguided advice or is that bad advice? Uh, I'm going to, I mean, I guess I'll call it bad advice. You know what? I'm going to get controversial and say I'll call it misguided advice. Because okay. maybe, maybe the person was just trying to tell you to, like, relax, and that would be a way to relax. I'm not sure how by pumping yourself full of nicotine and caffeine, but, okay, like, let's just assume that the person was trying to get you to get your mind off it and relax and thought that a coffee and a cigarette would be a way to do that. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll call it misguided, even though every fiber of my being is screaming, bad advice. <laughs> but I'll just go. I'll go with misguided. How about you, Josh? Uh, what, as in like, a coffee and a cigarette I used to yeah. calm myself? Um, no, so if you feel, is that good advice, misguided, or bad advice, in your opinion? I, th I think it's misguided. <laughs> yeah, but misguided advice. Yeah, and Kim, <laughs> are, we, are we agreeing with misguided, or do you think it's bad advice or good advice? Bad, 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 bad. advice. Right. I, I think what, what we'll probably come across here is that, I think the first thing to remember is that um, what works for some people who have some an experience of anxiety doesn't mean it will help for an anxiety disorder. No, that, that's really true. Uh, so that was my doctor, my GP, who, who gave me that advice. Oh, really? Yeah. Coffee and a to cigarette. To have a cigarette? Yeah. Really <laughs> Come on, cigarette. <laughs> that is oh. that is a badass doctor right there. He's smoking, <laughs> well, drinking. <laughs> maybe we need to preface it with where the advice came from yeah. to determine. No, I know. I like. I like how Dean reveals it at the end. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, Drew, have you ever had any bad advice? Yeah, I had. I had my fair bad advice. Uh, my share of bad advice. I, honestly, I think. I know everybody's going to relate to this one. The the worst, I mean, I said the worst, the almost silliest bit of advice that I got was a bunch of people who said that I just needed to take a vacation. I I heard that over and over and over. Just take a nice vacation. Go lay on a beach for a few days. Yeah, so I, I'd definitely say that's bad advice because uh, with a lot of people, um, it's a new place as well. So going through an anxiety disorder, that uncertainty could actually increase anxiety, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, well, it was my advice, so I'll, I'll leave you guys to answer that. Josh? Uh, for me, um, it, it, it depends on the on what anxiety it is. If it's conventional stress-induced anxiety, then, yeah, holiday can be, can be miraculous. But if you're talking mm -hmm. about anxiety disorders, then no, and particularly if you've got, like, inwards OCD or, or something like that, no, actually, that's, that's awful advice because it's dismissive um you, you you're not actually looking at the problem and it's almost like saying well rest is the solution actually no the, the solution is actually looking at kind of what we're doing that's maintaining the anxious cycle um so yeah it's bad advice from from, from my end 
Mm. Kim? I I would say misplaced advice. Um, oh, you're wrong, Kimberly. You're wrong. <laughs> because because I, I I agree in that um like with Josh in that you sometimes do need just to take a load off, right? Like that's what I'm currently doing, right? And we're taking the summer off and trying to just get back into nature. However, it's important to recognize that if you have a disorder, your brain goes with you on vacation. It your brain is here. You can't leave it at a home. And so it's it's a matter of recognizing that it will be there when you get back, even if you get a break. Um, it's and as as Josh said, it's about patterns and looking for patterns and trends that are occurring. So I think it it can be helpful, but we've got to be careful in thinking that we can move away from our problems. Yeah, could it be seen as um, avoidance, especially if you if you're doing it to uh, not feel anxious so if you're getting anxious at work or whatever and you feel like you need two weeks off would that be classed as avoidance yeah it can be I, I'll tell you tell you a story I, ha- I had a client many 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 years ago who had gone to a very relaxing place so I want you to think of the most like calm place and he came back after a week and a half and said I actually am going to move there. I, I didn't have the stresses. I didn't have the anxiety. I didn't have the intrusive thoughts there. And he did move. Um, the problem is, is that your brain ha- does habituate. And eventually, even though you've got some relief, your brain will find a way to find new problems and find new, like maybe stresses and, and like the, the fire alarm will go off in your brain. And so, so it's important to recognize that um, yes, it can be a form of avoidance, but your brain kind of follows you wherever you go. That's really interesting. So what he may have had like maybe a week or two week um, like lapse, so, but then the brain catches up and you're Three in a weeks. new routine. Three weeks. Of that, yeah. And, you know, had the had either the, uh, the same kind of symptom, but in a different content or the same content returned. Mm. Josh, have you had any bad advice? I've had plenty of bad advice. Um, yeah. Put, put all your faith in mindfulness and your anxiety will disappear. Um, well, let's, let's play. this is the first one. I brought a few today. I don't know how many we're going to do indeed, yeah, but this yeah, is the first one. Uh, and and this, one's more, this one's less of a spicy one, but it's like, Put all your faith in mindfulness and your anxiety will disappear. And, okay, for me, I think conventional... Oh, sorry, there's a tractor going by. Is this you, <laughs> Dean? <laughs> and, um, oh, he's turning behind me. What cool's that? Sorry. Um, yeah, and, and, and I tried this, and particularly when I was struggling, it was like mindfulness, mindfulness. And when you're in the midst of a panic disorder or what I had was actually sensory motor OCD at the time, uh, I found mindfulness to be really actually kind of... Uh, I was just going around in circles because it was too intense for my sensory motor OCD. Don't get me wrong. I use mindfulness now and I do use meditation. But when people say go and do mindfulness as the first stop for disorder and anxiety without the psychoeducation, without the reassurance, then I, then I, you know, that's when I, yeah, I think that that's not so great advice. What do you think guys? Um, I'll jump in there. Yeah. So when I first, I uh, was going through an anxiety disorder and like you do, you look for every single option that's going to help reduce the anxiety. I fell into the trap. I read somewhere mindfulness was great for reducing anxiety. So I started doing it 
Uh, but like you said, um, yeah, I think mindfulness is good, but as part of a, a weekly routine. So I, I definitely think um, focusing your attention on the here and now and letting the thoughts be there without passing judgment and things like that is really important. Um, but having it as, as practice uh, throughout the week instead of, oh, I'm feeling anxious, now I need to practice mindfulness. Yeah, absolutely. I do. By the way, I love, I like mindfulness. I'm not against it. It's when people say, do this now in response to your panic. It's like, well, actually, things need to be put in place first before you do mindfulness, in my opinion. I, I think a lot of this, I, I, you know, I almost want to say it's almost all like misguided or misplaced advice, but that only comes from like, I'm sure the people that are giving the advice, for the most part, just think they're, they're helping. Like they mean, they mean well, and the misguidedness comes from maybe just a lack of knowledge or education as to what the actual problem is. Since, you know, disordered anxiety doesn't obey any of the rules of just regular stress or regular life anxiety. It's not angst. It's something different. And they just don't know that. So most of this could probably be construed as just misguided advice if you look at it that way, but they just don't know. So they're just telling you the thing that they think sounds right. Mm. Kim, uh, yeah. mindfulness. Yeah, so <clears throat> in regards to giving advice on like mindfulness is the only way, I think anytime any clinician, medical doctor uses only, we're, you're in trouble, right? Um, interestingly, for my recovery is I actually, I think because of a stigma around asking for help, I would listen for hours, I probably told this story, to mindfulness talks by Tara Brock. Um, and I would take walks and just listen to the mind. And I feel like that, that skill and that practice hours of it actually got me to a place where I could actually start to do the work. So for me, I kind of had it, the mindfulness is what got me to do the work. So for me, I'm like a big go mindfulness kind of thing. But if that was my only tool and I didn't have someone sitting across from me going, you need to eat the fettuccine, like eat it now. I would never have recovered from my eating disorder. And if I didn't have someone to educate me, like Josh said, on eating disorders and why we have them and what's happening in your brain, mindfulness alone wouldn't have gotten me across the finish line. Really interesting. Kim, have you had any bad advice uh, thrown your way? Yeah, so this is like my pet peeve. So I, you guys can go at it because you'll probably you'll have different attitudes on this one. But I consistently got told to just be grateful. Like if I would just be grateful for what I have, um, why, like, you know, don't worry about your weight or don't worry about what people think. Be grateful for what you have. And that was it. Be more grateful. Yeah, yeah be more grateful. Yeah, ungrateful, you know. Yeah. But, uh, I always thought your anxiety was down to your gratefulness. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So petty, so petty. But I, I think um, I literally posted a reel last week sometime, and the title of the reel was it was some funny music, and it was meant to be tongue in cheek, was like bad advice. It was called bad advice, and it was and it was that. Like, just have you tried, you know, gratitude journaling, which is the answer to like, I'm afraid to leave my house. And I think that's bad advice and because I don't know, I don't care what your problem is. If somebody sees that you're suffering to that degree, like where, you know, where you're not eating and you're making yourself so unhealthy or whatever your particular disorder is, I think it'd be really, really difficult to look at that person and say, have you tried being grateful? Because 
<laughs> clearly there's a tremendous amount of suffering going on for this person who can't leave their house or is losing weight at an alarming rate and has this unhealthy relationship with food. Like, I'm just going to call that bad advice. Mm-hmm. But that is perpetuated every day, <laughs> every day, every damn day. Well, it's so, accusatory, isn't it? Oh, sorry. Didn't you... Drew, Drew, would you ever go to the shop and buy a gratitude journal for yourself? <laughs> I would, well, I, I'm not a... I want to be a journaling guy. I really do. Like I'm that guy. Like I want to be that guy. And then I like, I write for two days in a notebook and then the notebook is buried and I never see it again. I wonder why I have it. No, I probably wouldn't buy a gratitude journal, but I do think that keeping a journal during recovery as like a success journal is really a good idea. I don't have a problem with journaling. I think it's really useful. Just, you know, the, the idea that just waking up in the morning and writing down five things that you're grateful for. I mean, it's vapid advice. It's almost insulting, you know, and it's oversimplistic approach. Great answer. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's uh, accusatory towards the person and dismissive again. Like a lot of a lot of advice we get is like when some it can often come from a good place, but it's often even subliminally accusatory in nature when when you're struggling and someone says, "Have you tried this?" Now, obviously, again, that can come from a good place, but also it's, it, it kind of suggests that it's something that the sufferer isn't doing when mm-hmm. actually the sufferer is usually trying everything. Explore, explore, try, exactly, trying everything. And, and it's almost, and, and, and it's very simple in nature. It's not like, have you tried learning about the conditions, sitting down with a professional? No, it's like, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Uh, gratitude mm-hmm. is, um, no, I, I, I mean, it's just bad advice, isn't it? It's like, it's nothing, it's nothing to do with disorder and anxiety. I'm very, when I was diagnosed with panic disorder, agoraphobia and OCD, it was like, nothing to do with being grateful. I just wanted my life back. I loved my life. I wanted it back. You know, like, it's not, it's not about, oh, I'm not grateful for what I have. So yeah, no, really bad advice. I'll um, try and take a different approach. Um so here he goes. He's gonna. He's throwing a spanner in the work. Pensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously, for, for that specific situation, is is really not not the best advice. But I wouldn't say close the book on on, on gratitude journaling or journaling because when we're anxious, we we really were thinking inwards and we're paying attention to that inner critic, aren't we? The one that's belittling us, tell, telling us that we'll never. Uh, recover telling us that this is us this is how we're going to be so actually putting down on paper the opposite to that uh, and and even though you don't believe it actually putting it like there is a little bit of science behind there that writing positive things about yourself can actually change the way that the inner narrative is is speaking because I'm sure a lot of you guys um, can relate that when you're going through an anxiety disorder, that inner critic really is, it's turned up like maximum volume, isn't it? That's why I like Mm. the success journaling thing. It doesn't always have to be successes, but sometimes with journaling, people get the idea that if you're going to journal, it means you're just pouring your thoughts out onto paper, which... In a lot of instances, traditionally, that's not a bad thing to you know unburden yourself. But when you're yeah. so wrapped up in every thought you have, just continually writing them down, I've heard from many, many people will say like, oh, that was bad because it just kept me wrapped up in these anxious and intrusive thoughts. But journaling your successes, today I was really afraid, but I took a walk around the block. I did it. Mm-hmm. 
Like that's a good thing you can go back to and say, hey, look, I did that when I thought yeah. I couldn't. So I like you that. Can, yeah, definitely. Even though I felt anxious, I was still able to do this. Right. I did this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's like um, an element of CBT in it, isn't it? Kim? Yeah. Yeah. So a celebration, like that's a part of the celebration of doing exposures, right? Is, you know, um, in in my book that's just coming out, it's actually the final step. So there's these four steps and the, you do your exposure, you practice, exp- you practice compassion, and then you celebrate. Like you're not allowed to start again until you've done some kind of celebrate. And I think that that does retrain the brain into th- saying like, yay, good, we did hard things. That's a good thing instead of it being like, that's a bad thing. Fantastic. Right, let's get through you uh, some of the bad advice or maybe we think it's good advice from the followers. Um, the first one is take a pill and you'll get over it, Drew. Oh, that, you're baiting me now. That's what you're doing. I see this. Yeah, let me, let's start with that guy. I saw, I, I, saw, I saw Dean smirk a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> let's wind him up. That's a, um, that's a good idea. And we'll just go have a drink. Um, I look, you know, I, I, we talked about this before. I, I don't, I don't consider like medication, like, you know, inherently evil. It's really not. It has its purpose. It, it helps in some instances where people really, really need it. I have no problem with that, but that's a really oversimplification. I think that's bad advice because it, it fits in with, <laughs> wait, let me use my sign, my bad sign. Oh, oh, that doesn't say bad. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so I think it, it feeds into that, like the quick fix mentality, especially here in the US, we had a lot of pharmaceutical advertising direct to patients for years. I don't know if you guys had that in Europe, but it feeds into that, that quick fix mentality. Like, just take a pill and take that pill forever. And that's all you'll ever need. And just like when it wears off, just take another one and just let the doctors play with your doses. And that's, yeah, when you need it, you need it. And it's a tool used judiciously, but it's not the answer all the time forever. Like there are other things to do alongside that. And it leaves those parts out. That's why I think it's bad advice. Yeah, that's so that's so alien to to me and Josh. Like um, the drug companies actually directly selling to to you guys, to the audience, the consumer. Mm. Uh, it's really hard to imagine. No, it's it's illegal. Over here. Yeah, we had it for years. Yeah, years and mm. years and years. We had it like you couldn't turn on the TV without seeing an ad for something. Um, mm. So, uh, Kim, were you here during those years, or were you still like hanging out in Australia? Like, I don't know. Mm, I think I was just here. So I came okay. here right after September 11. So I don't know. Yeah, so, we had a good 10 years of that. So mm. what's happened now, Drew? Did you put uh, guidance in place? Well, there's, it's still there. I don't. I believe that there are different regulations now that govern it a little bit more. But So you see less of it, or, or right. we just watch less TV, which is certainly possible. But uh, it was always so interesting, not to get off on a tangent on it, but the pharma ads, like somebody just said, the pharma ads are awful. They would, and, and whether it was an anxiety medication, although the antidepressants were heavily, heavily, heavily advertised, but other, you know, it would be like, well, it's this condition, that condition. And then they would have to read because the FDA and the FCC would make them read the list of potential side effects. And so it would be like a 15 second you know, snippet about what the drug does and then 45 seconds of like horrific, terrifying, like your head yeah. might fall off, you know, you might kill your whole family. 
and like ask your doctor if this is right for you. Like, no, I'm not gonna not after that giant list of effects. I ain't gonna ask. So it, I don't see them as much lately, but I just might not watch as much. So that could be it. right. No, but they they're they were allowed to speed up the time of it. So they go, here is this amazing drug, and here's a happy person, and she's so happy. And then they'd say the side effects. They would speed it up. I think they're allowed to go two times the speed. So you actually couldn't even really distinguish what they were saying. It'd go may cause may cause like you know, death yeah. and, and headaches <laughs> and fainting. And, but it would, t- it would really go really, really, really fast. Like an auctioneer is reading it super fast. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's bad good. advice. Yeah. Take a pill. Yeah. Um, take a pill, Josh. Good advice, bad advice. Uh, misguided. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's not a discussion about medication. If you need medication, take medication and, you know, but if someone says to you, take a pill and it's all better, then that's bad advice. Yeah. You know, like it, it, it medic- it med- if you need medication, talk with a professional and do it. But, you know, if it's your mate or a family member who's just dismissing you saying, oh, just find a pill and it'll all be better then it's, it's the way in which that advice was given. And they're obviously they're not being compassionate, are they? So bad advice if it's not coming from a compassionate place. Okay. I would say misplaced advice. Um Mainly because I think science has shown us that, a, like, here I go, a combination of, of CBT and medication is the gold standard treatment for treat, you know, for anybody. However, um, does medication work for everybody? Absolutely not. And that's where I would say it's being misplaced. So, yes, the science is saying that. But that would kind of be like saying, you know, it's a one size fits all approach, right? That everybody would need this same thing. And that's absolutely not true. Like there's so many clients I've had who have failed out of multiple attempts of medication. That doesn't mean they're doomed because, you know, if you had to choose between med and CBT, CBT has better results. So you're still fine. Um, so I think that they, um, they're misplaced in the, their understanding of the science. Hmm. I think I think I'll go with you, Kim. Misplaced, um, just yeah, just the way that it's been worded. It, it maybe could have been worded. Um, there's many options out there for anxiety recovery. Medication is one of you tried that. Mm. Uh, something along them lines. I think that would be better. Um, okay. But yeah, just saying, have you have you no have a pill and everything will be fine. Um, the guys are either that. that is bad advice, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah. The next one is. Um, well, they actually want our advice on this as well, um, because they're really interested in starting it. But they need to know. They need to know from the recovery room: is it recovery room approved, and should they invest their money on it? So, um, to cure, cure your anxiety. Oh boy! <laughs> to cure your yeah. anxiety, you need five sessions a week of tapping. Uh, okay um <clears throat> that's bad that's bad <laughs> advice that is just flat out bad advice i'm just gonna go with bad because i i got a group of seven thousand people waiting over at facebook right now that will tell you how bad that advice is because a lot of them have tapped their way into like eye socket bruises <laughs> trying to cure their anxiety with that now look does tapping have some application in some ways? I know some people use it as a way when they're sort of doing trauma therapy and, and re-experiencing. It's a way to kind of ground and keep you in the present. So I understand it's used in a lot of different ways. But the advice that says five sessions a week of tapping, because the tapping itself is a magical way to make you not afraid of your own heartbeat, is horrific advice. Terrible mm-hmm. advice. 
And I would ask if that person has an affiliate link to some sort of online tapping like webinar, oh, because that's probably what that is. Mm -hmm. uh, I, that's right. I said it. <laughs> I'll say it again. I'd even go, for, if anyone tells you that you need five sessions of something and, and to invest your money, uh, I'd tell them to go and do one because a professional won't tell you how many sessions you need and they won't tell you what you need to do for your mental health. So if you know anyone is telling you that you need certain amount of sessions for this and that, that's different from say, saying, uh, seeing a trained CBT therapist who's like, let's see what we can do with 12 sessions. And then if we need to extend it, or if you want to leave at any time, that's fine. When someone's telling you, you need to do this and see me every day or do this tapping every day, that ain't that ain't cool. That's not cool. Uh, and it's bad advice. Okay. Yeah. It's terrible advice. Um, oh, it, terrible. The, yeah. The use of the word cure around mental health has to be used very carefully, I think. And has to be, I think in order to use that word, you first have to educate them in what your idea of cure means. Mm -hmm. um, because oh, you're oh. running into a situation where you're providing incredible unethical care because you've promised something that you can't promise. Um, the other thing is, and let me just add a second piece to this, is particularly for the folks out there with OCD, it can become incredibly compulsive to tap. Um, and that's just something to keep an eye out for because it can very much look like a compulsion to neutralize a fear. If I do this, I can try and, you know, if I had a bad thought, I can make it into a good thought and so forth. Or sometimes people have a form of just right OCD where they have to do things a certain amount of times until it feels right. And tapping can get very complicated when it's applied to people with OCD. So, um, again, I'm not saying it's a complete take it off the table, but it should be used um, as an adjunct way back in the priority in terms of first using ERP and mindfulness and you know, sometimes acceptance and commitment therapy. Because it's really interesting, actually, that there, there are, there, there is scientific studies on tapping and yeah. and it does show, go to show that it lowers traumatic, anxious responses. Like, okay. you you know, if we were going to, if we're going to trust everything that empirical science throws at us, and it is, it, it was actually a, a peer-reviewed um, study. So, you know, but mm. at the same time, yeah, you, who's doing the tapping? You know, if you it's for OCD. It, Josh, do you think it's a placebo? I think it's, um, I actually don't mind it in certain situations because particularly for people who in, who are stuck with intense rumination, I asked uh, an MCT therapist about this and they were like, it's not as stupid as it sounds. I mean, it's not about, it's more of a tool to keep a thought there, but whilst keeping your attention in the present yeah. and therefore the brain can file it away. It's nothing to do with meridian points and bollocks no, like that. No. It's about, it's, it's about, but it's about like a method where if you're if you're like kind of experiencing something traumatic and you need grounding whilst keeping because tapping keep, makes you keep the thought there, which I find interesting, as opposed to everything else that's trying to repress everything. Um, I mean, you look like a bit of a tool doing it. But at the same time, I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna honk the horn of science, there's a few studies out there that says it does ground people. I mean, it didn't personally work that work well for me, but, you know, I, I, misguided in terms of on the subject of tapping, bad advice if someone tells you you need to be doing that five times a day or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah.
But I, it, I would have is, also. If it uh, is okay. working and you, you're starting to get anxious, um, mm. could, could you could that lead you down the path of um, using it as like um, um, like white knuckling, like um, using it as a as a tool, almost like the water bottle or, or the ice cubes? Yeah, like a safety feature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how I see yeah. it most often. But I see it most often as that. And then people get really frustrated with it because they think and they're told by folks mm. who say five sessions a week will cure you. Like as mm. soon as they feel those anxious feelings start to come up, they'll immediately start doing their tapping. And if that doesn't bring it back down, then they get even more amped up. And like if that was not working and they get really frustrated. And But interestingly, along Josh's lines with that, that trauma response thing, using tapping in that, I've heard some people who have really made, had good success with emetophobia using tapping. As an adjunct to the exposure. So when the therapist is making them watch videos and listen to sounds and smell smells, they sometimes are able to use the tapping to stay present as opposed to being sucked away into the, the trauma of that memory that maybe started the emetophobia film. So I, I've heard people who've used it that way, but it definitely was did not cure their emetophobia by itself. So yeah. Um no, yeah, great answer. I think I agree with all of you there. Um Great. I think I think it's a good grounding tool, isn't it? And if it's focusing your attention on the body, and um, them selling it, because I've heard that as well, Josh, about these specific points are, are proven to reduce anxiety. Well, that's a lot of bull, isn't it? Uh, and that that just needs to not be anywhere. But unfortunately, you're going to get that. You're going to get um, people marketing things as as cures, and you just need to be very wary. Is there a cure for anxiety, Drew? Ooh. Well, I don't know, because I think if we take the traditionally accepted you know, cure, what we think is cure, which means it's just gone, you don't have it anymore, it disappears, like, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> Sorry. Right. two now. You should ask him for a ride, man. Looks like fun. Um, I, I think traditionally we look at cure as like, it's gone, it's over, like if you cured your cancer, you're, you're cancer free, it doesn't come back. So in that context, I think the answer is probably no. I'll say no. Um, is it 99% cured for a lot of people? I would say for me, sure. It's, I, if I, you ask me my level of cure, I would say 98.5% cured. And then the 1.5% of the time that it does you know, rear its head, it is, it's not a problem. And it's gone again really quickly because it's not a problem. But, but you know, is it totally banished from my life? No, it's not. So I don't know if there's an actual cure in that context. Josh? Uh, I don't use the word cure. Uh, if you replace the word cure, because anxiety is an emotion, and okay, some emotions become can become disordered. Like you can have anger as a disorder. You can have mm -hmm. sadness that becomes a disorder. And you don't cure emotions, but you put them back, in my opinion, you put them back in order again. Can you overcome excessive anxiety or and turn mm -hmm. back to normal levels of anxiety? Yes, 100%. Of course you can. You can you can. What a great what a great title for a book that would be. Uh, oh, sorry. Where did you get that? Somebody from, took Dave? it already. Uh, where did you get that book from? It must Amazon. Be good. Amazon guys. Everyone. All oh, right. Back, back. We'll all we'll all log on and buy it now. Uh, no, I think replace the word cure with overcome, and yeah, one hundred percent. But cure in, insinuates that you're ill, and this is where I get I have arguments like. Well, it's classed as a mental illness. And I, in my school of thought, because I'm humanistic as well, I'm like, oh, let's all be soft and unconditional and stuff like mm -hmm. that. 
uh, I don't ever see anxiety disorders as an illness. I see it as just things aren't in the right place and let's put them in the right place again. Mm. Great. Um, yeah. Kim, anything to add to that? Yeah, like I said, the word cure is very subjective. So I think it just more depends on what you call I just Googled it, right? And it does say it's the recovery or the relief from a disease. So, okay, based on the Miriam, you know, dictionary definition, yeah, you can do that with any disorder, I believe. I have much hope that you can get recovery in, you know, all the anxiety disorders and most of the psychological disorders. But I think where we need to be careful is in the marketing of, that people do around the word cure and, and how they associate that word, which should be a positive word that brings hope, but instead comes with a lot of stigma and a lot of pressure and, and dollar signs behind it. So, you know, I think that that's where I have a hard time with the word. And also, yeah, they can uh, they can also use it in a horrific way as well, can't they? So someone could buy into an idea that it not happened, and they say, "Well, it was it was on you because it was supposed to happen." So yeah. I've heard. And that. there's plenty of people out there like that, D. <laughs> right? You did yeah. you did it wrong. You didn't follow the the program. Yeah, you know? you yeah. you've not recovered because you've not followed the program. Now give me some more money. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a shaming tactic, right? Yeah. 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 Um, the Could next you, one, hey, wait. Ha, hang on a second here. Could you yeah. do an audible, audible spoken version of your book? Could you? Yes. Could you, huh? We uh, are doing. We are. Doing. As a matter of fact, they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are doing. We just yeah. weren't going to do it in thirty-two degree heat with no aircon. Yeah. We would just be like shouting into the mic for for, for, for four hours. Like, you would hear the sweat. You would hear the sweat yeah, dropping yeah, into the paper. We, I, I can't edit out the sweat, guys. I don't have that. <laughs> so. um, the next one. So the science behind it is that sugar increases anxiety. You just need to change your diet. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll go from a. I'll go from a really specific perspective. Okay. Now, I'm going to get haters about this, but I'm totally fine with it because I do all the time. So this is one perspective, but let me just give you a perspective. We have to be – I just posted about this and I got a whole bunch of spice in the yes. DMs. No, you we brought the to, spice. You yeah, we spice. have to be careful of giving nutritional advice to people before assessing them for an eating disorder, right? So, yes, can can – some certain, you know, they've found, found some, some not so great evidence around sugar and its relationship to anxiety. But I'm putting that aside. I'll let um, Drew and Josh and Dean Wayne on that. But let me just come from the angle of please, anybody, do not give even your friends nutritional advice until you are very certain they do not have a predisposition or a history of an eating disorder. That's all I'm going to say because it can easily trigger an eating disorder very easily. And so what was really good, helpful advice or kind-hearted advice could actually trigger someone back into a mental disorder. Great advice. That's, that's super interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. Drew, sugar? Yeah, uh, sugar. Um, no, I mean, like cutting sugar out, you know, given in the context of what, you know, Kim, let me ask you a silly question because I want to just follow up on that. Is there a link, like people who are more prone to things like panic disorder or agoraphobia or OCD, are they more likely, do you know this, to, to develop an eating disorder along with that, possibly? There is there is a very high overlap between OCD and eating disorders because they uh, usually occur in a similar place in the brain. Um, yeah. 
of course, women are going to be more exposed and to it than um, men, but that is a generalization. So I don't want to exclude any exclude any men in that sort of that sort of ex- explanation. Um, less with eating, sorry, less with um, agoraphobia, panic, um, but can also very much overlap with body dysmorphic disorder, hair pulling, skin picking because they're very focused on the body. So that makes your your exhortation there even more important. Somebody with an anxiety disorder handing out nutritional advice mm-hmm. is a bad idea. So I, I will say that it is misguided advice because everybody knows that we should try and be healthy. And I'm a big fan of like, yeah, like be as healthy as you can be. Everybody should, regardless of anxiety status, for sure. It just gets really misguided because people seem to think that somehow or other, if you just get like super healthy, you know, I rid my body of, you know, the magic toxins. It's another like button. That's another word that I hate. Like, you know, get rid of all the toxins. You got to detox, you got to flush, you got to do liver cleanses. You got to like, you know, don't eat sugar. Sugar is heroin. I, I love the sugar is heroin thing. Like my head explodes, like, okay. But so it's really misguided advice. Like, yeah, eat, eat, eat to fuel your body the way it needs to be fueled and fueled, but do not expect that to fix your anxiety, make it go away. Again, what I always tell, and I get in arguments with this all the time, like, no, 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 no. I, there's no way you can't eat those foods or foods that cause inflammation, which is my other favorite thing. Everything is inflammation, but it's inflammatory. Yeah. But inflammation doesn't make you afraid of your own heartbeat. The same, the same thing always applies. So, oh no, somebody just popped in anti, I'm sorry. I just right, perfect comment right there. Anti-inflammatory diet has nothing to do with this. Like, um, so it's misguided advice. Be healthy, eat well. Good advice. Definitely. Just yeah, don't general, expect general, general mental health, uh, overall physical health, well-being, be healthy. Um, I need to take that advice as well. <laughs> so we can all we can all do better. Um, Josh, is there anything you want to add to that? Or are we all good with that? Uh, I have um, no. I, I want uh, this thing. I'd like to add to that. Uh, my rule in my practice is, and and I'm gonna get it put on a plaque, is that. The main thing I hear from people with anxiety disorders that come to see me is, I just want to feel like I used to, or I want to feel like normal again. And to do that, well, you know, we've, we've got to activate those old neural pathways that are already there. So my rule always is, is do what non do what non anxious you would do. I went down the route of doing all that kale smoothies. I cut out gluten, even though I'm not a celiac, and did all these crazy things to try and do these things. And you know what? Do you know what I'm going to do later? I'm going to buy a donut. It's full of crap, and I'm going to sit and I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to have a pint of beer, and I'm going to sit and drink that because that's what non-anxious me would do, and and that's that's part of life. It's nice for me. I like that. I will enjoy that. I mean, will I do that every day? No, because I'm not an idiot. But I'm going to look forward to and and do that. Obviously, the exception is, and then I do find this more and more because a lot of people with anxiety disorders actually develop IBS or it triggers IBS. Obviously, you can take the very stoic view that of do what non-anxious you would do. But at the same time, if you know that something really sugary is going to trigger your IBS and make things a lot harder, then in that sense, all I'd say to my IBS crowd is just be a bit sensible. You know, get 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 be fun and do that. But in general, I'm I'm not really bothered about nutrition and stuff like that. It's nothing to do with anxiety disorders. You know, as a student, I didn't have an anxiety disorder, and I must have eaten pasta every day and drank every day. I had no vitamins. There was nothing to do with anxiety disorder. It's because I've developed a phobia of my own symptoms and misinterpreted the reaction. What's that got to do with kale smoothies and toxins? 
absolutely nothing. I'm with Drew on that one. And I'd actually go far mm-hmm. say it's bad advice. I think, you know, trust yourself to just know what's put in your body. <laughs> You're not an idiot. Sorry, I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's listen to your body, right? Yeah. Listen to your body. It, it'll, you know, often, like Josh was talking about with IBS, like it is, some people do have sensitivities. So, but, you know, listen to your body in that respect. And um, I just saw an interesting comment there, just see what you guys think about this. Um, someone put, um, the science is that women are twice as likely um, to get an anxiety disorder. Do you think that's because men don't come forward, so that statistic isn't right, or do you think that the science is right there? Anyone? I I didn't think it was that strong, but that might be a specific anxiety disorder that I'm not aware of. But I thought I thought generally it's actually closer to fifty fifty. But I could be completely, you know, my that could be misplaced advice in and of itself. Um, I think in certain countries, absolutely, there is large stigma. I'm from Australia. Um, when I grew up in Australia, there was a massive stigma around mental health. They have the government has done an amazing job at destigmatizing mental health, and now men are much more likely to reach out. I did a whole men's campaign on it, and it proved to be significantly help, helpful in terms of reducing suicide risk and, and suicide rates. Um, but I do think that different countries have a heavy um, stigma on men because they've, they've said it is a weakness. Yeah. Different cultures too. I did a podcast episode with, um, with Lisa Cortez. We talked about that in the Latina, Latinx mm-hmm. community. Like, no men are conditioned. And like, it's coming from an Italian American family too. If you guys remember the Sopranos, like Tony Soprano was seeing a psychiatrist and had to keep it under wraps, man. So mm-hmm. it's even in certain cultures in, you know, in heterogeneous environments like the U S the cultural moray is no, no, we don't, men don't go get help. Men don't talk about that stuff. We are the breadwinners and the hunters and gatherers, you know, so could be reporting bias there, you know? What do you think, um, Josh? I mean, I can use my own statistics and I've been in practice for six years and I'd say it's pretty much down the middle, but uh, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I had, I even have one of my close friends who knows what I do for a living and it took him four years to come forward and say you know what i think i'm struggling with ocd so what does that tell you he knows what i do as a job he knows i know it don't, i don't think it's weakness he knows i'm not going to judge him and i definitely know that i definitely definitely think a lot of it is to do. it's not just gendered it's it's for me i think it's a kind of almost like a patriarchal view that that, that can affect women too so there's there's women that will say or, or that will say oh um, I don't show my emotions. And I've had, met a lot of people like that too. But I think it's a very patriarchal uh, viewpoint of, yeah, emotional conservatism is revered, it's weakness, et cetera, et cetera. It's changing, you know, thanks to absolute heroes like us. It's changing, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I, I, I if I were to put a bet on it, I'd say it's right down the middle. I don't think it's gender specific at all. Because uh, like what Drew mentioned, though, it being cultural in in many different cultures, how how do you how do you like get into that? How 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 can you get change from from something that's embedded into a culture? Is it possible? It, it was not in our lifetimes. Well, you know, it's actually really Sorry. interesting was when Dr. Lisa was when I was talking to her about it. She wound up seeing a tremendous number of teens and young adults. Now, with teens, first they had to 
you know, sort of like twist their parents' arms in, in the Latinx community because she was in South Texas, predominantly, you know, Mexican. And they would have to twist their parents' arm, but they knew, even the boys, the young men, like, no, no, I, I need to go get help. So I think generationally speaking, it will change. Is it going to be easy to change, you know, the, the older generation, their minds? Hopefully we can. But at least one person, one therapist in a heavy Latin community in South Texas saw that the younger people were starting to reach out and talk about it more openly. And that was really encouraging. Good job, you know. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah. Um, can I can I yeah. add something there that it might be a little bit um uh, you know, for everyone is what I've noticed as a clinician is interestingly having everyone go through COVID, parents are more likely to raise their hand and say, my child's suffering because there's something external to blame. I think a lot of people have a hard time um, pre-COVID. I've seen a massive shift in parents just being like, oh, we so we need help. We've been through COVID. But before that, I think that sometimes parents had a very hard time with self-judgment around like, if I take him to therapy, it's probably because I've done something wrong. But really it has been a massive, massive shift in the parents and how they're very clearly happy to raise their hand because we have this external thing to, to sort of blame. Interesting. Um, two, two more, I think, guys, will be able to fit in. Um, you can't recover because you went through trauma. That's what someone's been saying. Oh. Oh. Josh, oh. do you want to go first? Oh. Recover from what? I mean, an anxiety disorder. An anxiety disorder. Yeah, you can you can recover from an anxiety disorder. Um, do I think that certain levels of PTSD will be with you for the rest of your life? Yeah, I do. I've been traumatized, and some of that trauma will be beneath the rest of my life. It will pop up, and it lingers around probably a bit longer than say anxiety disorder or fear of emotions. It just it just likes to mess about in your hippocampus and your brain and mess about but in general no you can you can overcome an anxiety disorder and what everyone knows this and i put spicy comments all the time and fall out with psychotherapists here it's like we need to find the root of your trauma to, to solve your anxiety no you don't actually i always take ptsd separate if you're struggling and actually a lot of the time people who've been traumatized don't have ptsd i think it's like what was it 15 percent 10 to 15% of people that go through trauma are susceptible to, um, to, to struggling with PTSD or something like that. I think that's, I'm pretty confident that's the number. Um, and sorry, tractor's coming back. Sorry, <laughs> let me put the window up. And um, so, no, two can happen. So I went through a really traumatic moment of my life. And then I developed an anxiety disorder separately. And so, I approach the fear of fear and then I work with the PTSD. Now I'm very happy. I'm very grounded. I know that trauma will always come back and don't trust me. The amount of people have told me I can solve that trauma. I'm like, all right, then good luck, mate. Uh, but no, you in general, you can recover from an anxiety disorder, no matter how kind of traumatized you've been in my opinion. But if there's the PTSD side of things, you know, it depends on what's happened to you. Cause some people have just seen a lot of crap and sometimes you know that that's some that does kind of follow you around a bit. Can you limit that? Can you work on that? Of course you can. Can it, can you still live a happy life? Of course you can. But yeah, I think it's it's important to distinguish between them both. Great answer. Um, Drew, Kim, John, Adam, Kim, go for it. 
okay, let me take a breath. <clears throat> I get so pissed off when people say to people that they have this, like, they've already decided who and who can, can who can and cannot get better. It makes me crazy. So this is where I get really <laughs> feisty. Like, okay, who has, a, like, unless you've got some amazing into the future mind, future telling, like, power, you who are you to tell someone that they can't get better? It makes me crazy. Like, I'm going to, like, full-on bad advice this one. Like, no, you have no evidence of it. Every person is different. If you anyone ever says you can't get better and, like, looks you in the eyes and says, and I've had so many people who've come and said, you know, my psychiatrist said to to my parents expect them to be bedridden for the rest of their life. And I'm like, who are you to say that? Whoa. Right. Who are you to <laughs> say that? Right. So if anybody, a friend, a therapist, a psychiatrist, a doctor says, here is your outcomes, please just politely just walk away because no one has that information to say recovery is huge. Neuroplasticity is a thing. Anybody can make major steps. It might be a journey like Josh said, but walk away. Sorry, it makes me really mad. I like it. Yeah, right. that's good. I want to hand you a mic so you can drop it. That was really good. The feisty okay. Kim doesn't come out very often, but that is one. Uh, Half Pint said she lives for feisty Kim. That was the great best <laughs> comment so far. It was really good. I, I will tell you that, like, I have. Um, I mean, you know, it's a fairly large community. I'm fortunate to have around my podcast, and I see people every day. Every single day, real life people who were told that unless they uncovered this trauma that they they can't still uncover, either because it doesn't exist or because they just haven't been able to access it yet. Unless they do that, they will not get better. I see them every day get better. Every single day. I am not jerking your chain here every single day. Now, many of them wind up getting better from an anxiety standpoint, which I always call like stop the bleeding. So they are able to function again. They can start to live their lives again. Like they can do all those things. And then many of them do start to uncover maybe some things in their past, but then they can work through it in a, in a healthy way or in a productive way and kind of get things done. So I see it every single day. I would not let anybody tell you that like trauma makes it special and therefore you cannot recover. That's terrible. Right. Yeah. My two cents. No, great comment. Um, yeah. last, last but not least, guys, um, anxiety coaches. Can I go with an anxiety coach who doesn't have qualifications? Josh, I'll let you go first. Why? Why, why are you pointing that towards me? <laughs> I just saw you first on the screen. <laughs> wow. Uh, in the UK... There are many people that will claim that they can cure your anxiety. They're the only person who knows whether you've got an anxiety disorder, panic disorder, OCD, naming no specific presentation. Um, and actually, these people aren't licensed. They're not qualified. They're not regulated. And most importantly, for safety behaviors, then no one holds them to account. And recently, I've been doing some work, as you know, uncovering a fair few of these uh, coaches and groups and things and heard some horrifying things. Just, just because someone's qualified doesn't mean they're 100% legit. You can get, I know there's therapists out there that, that aren't great. 
Well, you, you're going to increase your likelihood and, and they will be registered with an accrediting body so they are held to account. Do In the UK, and I don't know what it's like in the US, so I'm not going to comment on that as such, but in the UK, if someone is a PTSD coach or an OCD coach or someone like that with no qualifications, avoid them. Avoid them like you'd avoid watching your parents con- conceiving your sibling. Avoid them what, like you'd avoid. They're just not <laughs> worth it. Whoa. Uh, yeah, just don't do it. It's just not worth it. It's dangerous. Uh, and you get absolute, really vulnerable, affected people. You might have seen them in the comments. They come in here as well. But you, you, I've heard people get brainwashed and things like that because there's dangerous people out there who think they're doing good and they're not. So anxiety coaches. Um, do I think there's some good coaches out there? I do, but you've got to make sure someone's holding them to account. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, they can get carried away, and you've just mm-hmm. got to. You, I get held to account. Can you imagine the job my supervisor has? She's like, "What are you doing this <laughs> week?" I'm like, "Oh my god," you know. But at least I'm. T- <laughs> at least it's okay, a I what are you, doing? Why are you waging war online with people? What about your intention? Yeah. Like, I'm not. I'm just helping people. But yeah, um, no, no, be very careful is what I'll say. And in the UK, see someone qualified. True. Um, an anxiety coach who's been through anxiety, come out the other side, recovered. Can they um, guide someone along their own personal journey? Okay. So full disclosure here, I have been asked for years. to. Co- I literally have people like who will wave money at me and say, please, 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 can you be my anxiety coach. That's true, right? So I I don't. I've done it with like 10 people. So full disclosure, I've done that. And like Kim, you and I have talked about that a little bit. And I've expressed my like trepidation to my friend Kim a few times about that sort of thing. And I was super reluctant to do it because it feels like such a tremendous responsibility, right? I don't think I was even close. And that's not something I'm doing on a wide scale. And I don't have any plan to do that because it is a tremendous responsibility. And I don't feel like, you know, without that supervisory structure, because it is easy when you have a bunch of vulnerable people that are waving money at you and telling you that you're really helping them, you're amazing. That's a dangerous place for somebody to be. Anybody, I don't care who you are from an ego standpoint, and it starts to make you feel like you'd start to believe your own press, and you can never do that. So I think... I'm not saying that anxiety coaching is bad. I I mean, and honestly, I'm privileged to have worked with a few people that I have on a selected basis and watch them make incredible strides. They worked hard. I just kept them pointed in the right direction. That's all I did. I didn't diagnose anybody, didn't do any of that stuff. And I would Mm. never claim to cure anybody. So I would say any coach that tells you that they will cure you, run from. And any coach- Run away. Yes, fast, exactly. Honestly, like I have spent 15 years of my life learning from incredibly knowledgeable people like Josh and Kim here and trying to just stock up it as much information as I can and apply as much of that as I can before even consider talking to somebody Mm one-on-one. So just because you recovered last week from your panic disorder doesn't mean that you should be doing this because there's a whole lot going on. There's a lot to know. There really is. So choose carefully. They're out there. They're good. But choose carefully. That's right. what I would say. Yeah. And no, I, I don't ask me because I can't, I'm not going to be your coach. So I'm not doing it. I know in the middle of, of my anxiety disorder, if I would have come across your page, Drew, for example, and seeing the years upon years of experience and knowledge that you have, I know that I would have really benefited from coaching from you. So um, I, I definitely think in the, 
in the right concepts, especially for things like people who who have had panic attacks or dealt with panic disorder. So not OCD, Josh, but someone who's actually been through exposure and come out the other side and for someone to guide them and um, tell them that things things are going to be all right. I do think there is a place there for it. I don't know if in our country, if the, if that should be regulated, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent on that, Josh, but, Yes. I can't say that it, it's a hundred percent negative, though. <laughs> no, and and to be honest, you're just being held to account. I mean, Drew is the, one of the exceptions to the rule. I wouldn't. I've yeah. I've recommended people join Drew's group because I know Drew and I trust. I'm not a supervisor, but you know, I know from what I hear, and and he's the exception to the rule. Um, well, thank you. And That's he, very kind. But no, well, yes, I would. I would. I would. I wouldn't be. I would have no qualms with people doing that. But at the same time, just because Drew's really good doesn't mean everyone is. And actually, the spectrum between a coach being really good to dangerous is so large. that And, and I'm, I like what you said, that people start to believe their own hype. And I'm, I'm, I mean, some of the shit's happening here in the UK is insane. And um, I'm, I'm about to have a very busy winter, I think. But uh, <laughs> so is your lawyer, just saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> lawyers. I got lawyers, my friend. I got a whole squad. I've got the eight. Guys, what, what is the stance <laughs> in America? What is the stance in the US regarding how you go so, so um, therapists are regulated. So, a psychiatrist and psychologist, coaches are not. They get to do whatever they want. They cannot be disciplined for their behavior. Um, I will say that there is an important place for coaches in therapy. I have a practice with myself and eight other clinicians, um, and we use coaches. But the coach is to facilitate what we have set as homework. So I will assess, I will diagnose, I will psychoeducate, I will give them a plan and the coach will then help them put the plan in place similar to an intensive treatment program. That's now, awesome. if there is a coach who is that. doing the assessment and using a diagnostic term, they are literally working out of their scope of practice. They are not trained, nor are they have the qualifications to treat a disorder. I have a coach. I'm not anti-coaches. I love my coach. My coach kicks my ass when I'm my mind is out of the game. But they, we do not touch anything that's related to a diagnosis. And a good coach knows the difference. Um, I'm feisty today. Sorry, I don't know what's into me. Um, I'll bring it. So, so you're but, saying a coach? So you're saying a coach that comes along and says, "I'll cure your OCD." That's not very ethical. It's incredibly unethical because they're treating some that would be like do you want your dentist to be giving you a brain transplant no would you go to that your dentist no because then that's not their specialty they've had zero training in that area and even if you've been through something that's not you have to go through so much training to be able to diagnose so even if you've been through it that's not enough to know the ethical procedures of diagnosis and making a treatment plan. Um, and so I would encourage people, okay, separate, whether you have a therapist or a coach, anyone who says, and they make these great grand statements, I'll cure you, you, you know, you only need 10 sessions. Well, you know, that's dangerous, even if a therapist says that. 
but a coach, the, the, any good coach will know the difference. They'll say, I don't talk about diagnosis. I talk about facilitating a diagnostic plan made by a clinician that's been with. And I also think that a coach is really, for me, I would consider a group setting where it's just running a support group, but that is there to facilitate the work that people already know they have to do. And for me personally, as somebody operating in that capacity, Sorry. I can be, mo- that's right. I can be most effective when the person already knows what the problem is and knows what they have to do. They're just afraid to do it. And so they just need somebody to keep them on the straight and narrow. That works out really well. But like OCD, not with a 10 foot pole, not for any amount of money because it's, you know, uh, that's not right. The other thing I would tell you is don't let anybody ever tell you like all you need to do, because I see that also, all you need to do. And that's, that's also a big red flag. All you need to do is this. Like it's not all, it's never all you need to do. These are hard things to do, man. Like all you need. Can I ask you something, Kim, as well? Like I know plenty of people and plenty of therapists that have worked with OCD and successfully successfully with people, uh, not just like you and I and stuff. And I mostly work with anxiety disorders, but I do work with OCD as well. Um, but, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen many people. I know colleagues that have done it successfully where actually, you know, people can go on and facilitate their own lives. And it's highly possible, isn't it? There's plenty of people out there, mm-hmm. including yeah, your good 100%. self. <laughs> yeah so there i mean i think this is where we have to recognize that um do you need to have a therapist to get better no right um but if but if you're requiring help like again i like josh and and we all of us have a book and that book is enough to facilitate wellness you don't have to go through a therapist but if you're needing the level of care of a therapist but you're going to a coach you're very likely to, you know, and you're using that going through a coach for something that requires a diagnosis, chances are, you know, you're, you may, they may cut some ethical corners. So speaking about diagnosis, I got a huge backlash from one of my posts um, about psychotherapists. So am I right in saying, Josh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but in the UK, a psychotherapist shouldn't ever diagnose no never uh, i never diagnose uh what i will say is that this sounds like ocd so if you'd like to we can go along with that framework mm. um or or i'll say well this actually sounds like an anxiety disorder um but yeah i mean to be honest when people come to me they you know i go with what they they say i think i've got ocd i'm like well, okay let's have a look let's have a look at this pull out the CBT uh, tools and be like, does this apply to you, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, then let's go on off the assumption. And if you feel like it's not, then let's move on or whatever. But no, you, to be honest, the, the, the vast majority of people with anxiety disorders and OCD in the UK don't have a diagnosis. It's just oh. like, actually, you've got to jump through several hoops to get that diagnosis. Mm, so um, yeah, Kim, mm. what, what I'd like to just, uh, sorry to cut you off there, Josh, but I think it's really important. Uh, what I'd like to um, say to you is that I've, uh, what a therapist said that for for the person to be able to access their insurance or their treatment, that they need a diagnosis from a psychotherapist. So I guess is it just a difference in in the two countries? Yeah. yeah. So we we are not supposed to continue treatment until we have a di- a working what we consider a working diagnosis. So I have been trained to diagnose. Um, I do diagnose, but within my scope of practice. So if you have OCD, I will 
I can do an assessment, thoroughly use the diagnostic criteria and assessments, which are actual like peer-reviewed scientific assessments not created by me, um, to find that diagnosis. And that's required for me to then continue treatment. I'm actually working um, out of my scope of practice if I don't give a diagnosis. Now, not to say if someone came to me with ADHD, I wouldn't even attempt to go through that assessment because I'm not trained to assess in di- I'm only ass- I'm only trained to assess in this little area. Um, but I would not I wouldn't know how to assess for psychiatry like uh, psychosis, bipolar. I would refer out for that because I'm I'm going to only work within my scope of practice. But I do I am required to list a diagnosis to provide treatment. So is it like a multidisciplinary approach? Because obviously we know that anxiety can sometimes other medical conditions can mimic anxiety. So would you um, would you work closely with a GP who would like run relevant tests to make sure that that wasn't causing it? Yeah, usually a part of the diagnosis, like I said, a working diagnosis doesn't mean you do it on the first day. Um, you would do a, you would always refer out for medical if that was ever a concern and then you would consult. Most of the time I will also consult with the psychiatrist we're working with as well to make sure all of the presentation diagnosis match because um, then I know we're working well as a team. And, and that's, the, that's, that's just the standard of care that we provide in, in the U.S., and that's what so that, it's united by insurance, though, isn't it? So here, like, it's the the, the mental health system in the UK is terrible. Um, it, it, there's no united front. There's no holistic thing. I, I'm a private therapist, and people come to me, and I have to reach out to doctors sometimes. I, I never have doctors reaching out to me. I don't have. There's no communication, um, and I have to do all these things sometimes for for others. Um, it's I love the NHS. It's fantastic. It's one of the best things about the UK, but it's not up to scratch with this mental health approach. Oh, and um, I mean, I've benefited from it and plenty of people have, you know, because people come to me and I've had the NHS telling me, oh, come, come work for us. I'm like, no chance. No chance. Uh, but, you know, but like in general, you know, like, can, can you spend 30 minutes a week with this person just for six sessions and make them overcome their anxiety disorder? I was like, I can with some because I'm pretty good. But I'm not that good. I know that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not that good. I was, in, you know, what are you doing, guys? That's the very bare minimum here, because empirical science tells you, give them some surgery and give them some CBT and, and let's crack on with stuff. Because yeah, but anyway, that's another story. Uh, Drew, um, how was the mental health? Um, uh, the re- the for you, for you? Did you did you go and see a doctor? Did you how? Did you feel like your therapist diagnosed you correctly at the time? How, how was your experience? So my personal experience was I started with a GP like most people do, like something clearly must be wrong with me. And really in the early days when I first you know, had these problems, it was a GP who never actually, although to be totally honest with you, I never saw my chart. Like I never looked. So what was the actual diagnosis for my GP? I don't know. He used terms like free floating anxiety, which I'm sure you guys have. I don't know. That's an old term. That's not, that's right? not a diagnosis. <laughs> right. Right. And he used terms like, and he gave me, he actually gave me an anti, not an antidepressant, an antihistamine called, I forget, called Atarax. Like take this, like Benadryl. Like you have free floating anxiety, take this. 
And through the years, it was primarily GPs who were just writing me prescriptions for an antidepressant. And I never had a therapist who, who gave me an actual formal diagnosis of panic disorder with agoraphobia or OCD. I mean, in retrospect, I know what I had and I knew what I had then, but no, I never worked within that formal structure and I didn't go through insurance or anything like that. I did have a therapist for a short while. She was a licensed clinical social worker. She was lovely, but I, I stuck with her knowing that she wasn't a specialist because she was helping me in, in things that I needed help with. But yeah, mine was primarily on my own, to be honest with you, which like Kim was saying, I used the resources and I was able to do it on my own. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, very much the same. I went to the GP and they, they prescribed me the book that I mentioned. So the psychoeducation was really important. I did take some uh, therapy uh, free sessions that the GP actually held, Josh, which is quite unusual, I think. Um, so there's an actual practicing therapist within the GP practice and they they helped me. They gave me, um, I think it was between four or six sessions of just um, like speaking about uh, the passing of my father. And I think that was really important. And they never touched on that. I, I, I actually think that's quite nice for a GP practice to yeah. do that in the, in the UK, just to offer that. I think that's, you know, yeah. that's quite nice. Outside of anxiety disorders, I just think that's really nice, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, mine was mainly self-help like you, mm. Drew. So I did like self-help CBT. Um, and worked my way through it and just related to other people who'd overcome it as well. And yeah, live to tell the tale, thank God. Yes. Right, guys. Um, yeah, we've gone way over time, so I do apologize for that. And um, what are you working on this week? Where can everyone find you, Drew? Uh, let's see. My editor is working on 7% Slower, so that'll be coming out hopefully beginning of September. That's our goal right now. You can go to my website, theanxioustruth.com slash SPS and find out about that book. But otherwise, I'm just like doing what I do every day. Is Getting the book up early, be... going to bed late. <laughs> <laughs> is the book going to be on Audible, um, e ebook and paperback? It'll, it'll be all three. So it'll be ebook and paperback. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, it'll come out because we can't time that. It'll come out on audio. So, yeah, it'll be there. Cool. Brilliant. Uh, Josh, what are you doing this week? On uh, I'm, I'm on holiday, but I'm finishing my course and I'm still doing alterations to overcoming your unwanted intrusive thoughts book, which is um, not so overcoming. Uh, Untangle your intrusive yeah. Untangle <laughs> your intrusive thought. Un that's, uh, that was Sally Winston's book. Um, I was thinking about it just then. Um, feel free to read that too it's a great book uh, it's almost going to be as good as mine um, but yeah <laughs> that's what I'll be doing this week Brilliant, uh, Kim are we back working now or are we still on vacation? Yeah well, I'm on vacation still, we've got three more weeks so um, three, okay. three more weeks? This is just part-time absolute part-time yeah. Yeah. shabby we only have two weeks vacation Like that's a long time as well normally yeah, but I can work remotely, so I'm still working. But we're we're we just got away from LA for the summer to get the kids out and have a little bit of fun in nature. But no, I'm so I'm I'm on a working vacation, um, and I just started a new book, um, which will be short and an easy read for OCD, and that's about it. Fantastic. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Josh, thanks for parking up in the middle of nowhere and coming on. Sorry Drew, about the tractors. Drew, thank you so much for spending um, this lovely time Welcome. with us. And Kim, thank you uh, for coming over. 
I think today, I think today was a good advice day. Oh, good, good advice job. day. Oh, look at that cheese sandwich just as a relief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Look at that. Thank you, everyone. See you later, guys. See you guys. Have a good one. Bye. You've been listening to DLC Live. Be sure to follow Dean on Instagram at DLC Anxiety. Check our website at DLCAnxiety.com and grab yourself a copy of our latest book, Untangle Your Anxiety, on Amazon today. See you next time.